Lori Ten Boom, in her book The Hiding Place, uh, recounts the harrowing experience of life in a World War II Nazi prison camp in this way. She wrote, It grew harder and harder. Every day something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. As a believer in Jesus Christ, though, her conclusion was that love overcomes inhumanity in the concentration camp. Today on Focus on the Family, we'll hear another World War II story, only in a different prison camp in another part of the world, where a missionary by the name of Darlene Rose came to that very same conclusion. I'm John Fuller, and our host is author and psychologist Dr. James Dobson, and uh, we're returning to a classic story for the next three riveting days. You know, John, this is a classic in every sense of the word. Uh, like Corey Ten Boom's experience and um, that of former Senator Jeremiah Denton, who was a, a former POW in North Vietnam, whose story we featured a few weeks ago. Uh, Darlene Rose's story is about trusting God in the face of tremendous adversity. And we're going to devote three days to her recorded account of her fiery trial when she was a very well-known missionary. And I know our listeners are going to appreciate this good lady before these three days are over. Uh, Some of our listeners may recall hearing this astounding testimony before on Focus on the Family. Every time we have aired it, and I think it's several now, Mm -hmm. uh, we've had just an outpouring of response from our listeners. And this recording is now number six on our all-time list of favorite broadcasts, which says a lot it does. when you consider we've been doing this for 25 years. In fact, uh, this story is on our classic Focus Stories CD set, which a number oh. of listeners probably already have on their shelves and have listened to. But uh, it really is amazing uh, to think about and to hear about the things that she endured in a Japanese prison camp in New Guinea. And the attitude that she That's had the towards the Lord and towards her captors, uh, this is just an inspirational story. And the faith of this lady will astound you. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, she is uh, a wonderful uh, representative of Christians under pressure. Uh, Darlene was called to be a missionary as a teenager, and she and her husband went to New Guinea And uh, they were there when World War II broke out, and she was caught in all of that turmoil as a young woman. And that's what we're going to hear about today. Uh, There's a lot of material here, uh, John, in this recording. And Mm -hmm. she shared it with a church audience a number of years ago. And so uh, we need to get started on it because I know our listeners are not going to want to miss a word of what she has to say. Here now is Mrs. Darlene Rose. There are many of you here tonight that don't even remember World War II. And I'm sure that those who do remember could never believe, as I could not have believed, that within just a matter of two months after Pearl Harbor that the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy could have taken Hong Kong, China, Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, came down the back door into Singapore through Malaysia, and that within those two months they were making their inroads in the Dutch East Indies. 
I had been a missionary in New Guinea. I had walked over the trail from the south coast into the interior. My first husband was the first missionary that ever went into the heart of the western half of the island. And I waited a year and a half before they gave me permission, and I joined my husband in the interior, crossed 14 mountain ranges, and I shall never forget that first day when I came to the top of the mountain range and saw below me the first of the villages among these precious Kapauku people, Stone Age people who had only been discovered just a year or so before. And I remember the carrier saying to me, Ega, Niwe, quickly now, let's go. And I finally got to the top of the mountain, and they were so excited because they realized that we really were human beings just as they were, and uh, they wanted us to hurry and get there, not only because we were novel, being people from the outside world, but because of the fact they realize now that all of the things that my husband had told them about God who loved them and his son Jesus Christ was available to them too. Before they had always said, but if Jesus loved you, he didn't love us because we're just human beings and you're spirit beings. But after I recorded their folklore moving across the mountains, I've realized that all of these people believe that the known world is that pocket in the mountains there where they live, that people die and their spirits go over those mountains. And because we came from the other side of the mountain out of the spirit world to them, and no one of the early group who went in there had a wife, none had children. So if they weren't spirits, how did they come into existence in the first place? And that's a natural question for them to ask. And here I was, and these carriers with me knew that we were human beings just like they were. And I came to the top of the mountain that day, and I looked down, and I saw the people coming out of the gardens and rushing up the mountainside to greet me. Half your crowd goes, whoo, the other half says, whoo, so you get, whoo, whoo, whoo. And I was so excited, I was running down the mountainside to greet them, and I was waving my hands, and the tears were running down my cheeks, and I said, I'm home, I'm home. And for 43 years, that was home to me. And those were my people. And as I came up there, everybody rushed up to me. Everybody gave me a gift. Everybody gave me the same kind of a gift. It was a roasted sweet potato. I had my arms full. I finally sat down on the side of the mountain. They poured them into my lap and around me. And I uh, just then one of the carriers tapped me on the shoulder. He said, Mama, Kapaga Edupa is coming. The chieftain of this village is coming up. And I saw this older man with a bunch of arrows and his bow in his one hand. He stood up in front of me, and he looked down at me, and then he looked up on the mountainside. My husband was coming down the mountainside. I had these very heavy boots, like the field police wear with the cat's claws on them because of the broken bottle limestone. He was wearing the same kind of boots, and I knew what was going through his mind. I had heavy leggings on to protect you from the... um, the leeches there, when you get into your camp at night, the, you took off your leggings, you went over your legs with iodine or matches to get the leeches off. And he was wearing the same kind of leggings I had on heavy cocky trousers, so did he. I had a heavy cocky shirt with long sleeves, so did he. I had a big rain hat he had on a, a, an Australian army hat. 
And he looked down at me and he said, Akiyagamome, are you a woman or not? I said, yes, I am. He said, and they turned down their lower lip. He said, Bill, you're not. I said, yes, I am. And one of the carriers who was on the trail with us, he came and tapped me on the shoulder. He said, Mama, let your hair down. And I've let my hair down many a time before the people, literally that is. And before the war, I had quite long hair. did it in a roll around my head, as was very fashionable in those days. Most of you won't remember that. But um, I pulled the pins out of my hair, and when my hair rolled down over my shoulder, he said, <gasps> He said, and mother of mine, indeed you are a woman. No man ever had hair like that. <laughs> And then he gave it the, the pull test, and they yank your hair to see. And, of course, all these things you catalog, and later on you get the, the uh, answer as to why they do these things. I couldn't understand that, but then I found out that you could take a man out of the Western civilization here or out of the Stone Age. They're all just the same when their forehead begins to travel. When it travels back here and it gets to be a past complete tense, you can't do anything about it. It's a serious matter. So you go into the jungle and you get these big cocoons from the caterpillars that we eat. You eat the caterpillars first. Jerry says it must be like eating a tooth, swallowing a toothbrush. It isn't because you drop a handful on the coals of the fire, a couple of turns, and there all the hair is gone. And you pull them apart. There are three little white threads in there. It's just that it takes so many to make a meal. But uh, I have never refused anything that people have ever given me. We have been amazed at how delicious some of these things are. Tadpole tastes just like mountain trout and so forth. But uh, then you take this cocoon and you put it over your head and cover up that forehead that has traveled. And uh, then you put on the pure potter's clay and the plumes from the cassowary bird that we have there in New Guinea. It's very much like the ostrich. And you have an afro like you haven't seen in America. (laughs) And uh, so he was just testing to see if I was a a man whose forehead had traveled, and that convinced him that I wasn't. And I had never seen a man with hair like that, so it must be a woman. And from that moment on, I walked into their village and into their hearts, and they walked into mine. And uh, I was so thrilled when the day came and I could tell them that God so loved the world in their language. And then the day came when we come, came back. We had made trips into the outer reaches of this tribe of 60,000 people. And when we walked into camp that night, we heard that Holland had been invaded and Holland had fallen within five days. And so they were taking all of the patrol officers, all of the Dutch people, out of these outer posts. And uh, we, already there were U-boats out in that area. And so we had to pack up, and we put a lock on that little house. I little realized that day it would be nine years and a war away before I would get back to Imopai and my people in the interior. When we got to Makassar on the island of Celebes, uh, my husband was chosen as assistant to Dr. Jaffrey and then became the field chairman. And, um, and that day when we had stood and heard that... Uh, uh, Pearl Harbor had been bombed. We knew that it could not be very long before we would also be involved very personally in this war. 
and we watched as the boats came down the Macassar Straits, and uh, we went up to into the mountains about 60 kilometers from the coast where we had some houses that we used for missionaries who needed to get away from the heat of the tropics, and also our conferences were held there. Instead of coming into the port of Makassar, where all the fortifications were, they came in a place in the south coast on the, isle, on the um, beach at Brombong. There wasn't a shot fired. They, they just walked in and just took over the place. And, of course, we waited for them after they made their uh, landing on the 8th day of February. And finally they came up and they said uh, that we were prisoners, that we were to, at the present time, remain there, not have contact with anyone around us. We had brought in a few things, uh, kerosene for our lamps. We brought in some rice and some sugar, but very little else. They said you are not to have contact even with the natives around you to get food, nothing. If you're ever seen off of this property, you'll be shot on sight. The men were badly beaten, and uh, then they said, uh, we're leaving you now. We will be back again. The second time they came back was Friday the 13th of March, and I have a bit of Irish in me, but I'm not at all superstitious. I really believe, and I learned as a little girl, nine years of age, that God means exactly what he says, and Romans 8.28 means exactly what it says, that all things work together for good. That isn't the way we like to read it. That isn't the way we want to interpret it. We want to think that those good things that happen to us work together for good for us, but God's word says all things work together for good. I remember that day when uh, on the Friday, the 13th of March, they said we're going to take the men somewhere else to and imprison them, and the women are to remain here. And I ran into the house when he said, go and get some, no suitcases, but get some of your husband's clothes. And I ran into this little house, and I grabbed up a pillowcase, and I put in some of his clothes and his Bible, a notebook, and a pen. And then as I came out, one of the officers was motioning for me to come. I ran over to the Jaffrey house. Dr. Jaffrey was in his bedroom with one of the officers. He said, now what is wrong with this old man? And I said, well, and I began to enumerate the things that were wrong with him because Dr. Jaffrey had been very ill. I said, he was in a coma on the coast just before you people came. And I said, he has a heart condition. He also has a kidney condition. And I went on to name all of the things that were wrong with him. And he said, well, anybody that needs all the medicine that man needs is not going to last very long anyway, so he'll just stay here. Just tell him he doesn't need to pack. Well, I knew that the only thing Dr. Jaffrey was using was saccharin, and I couldn't understand what all this medicine was that he was packing. And so after they had gone, I went in to see him, and I said, Dr. Jaffrey, what was all this medicine that he said you were packing there? He said, um, well, he said, I, I realized that if they took us out of the mountains, they must be going to take us down to the coast. And he perspired profusely. He loved eau de clone to put on his handkerchief and to mop his face with because it was very refreshing to him. And that was what he was packing. And that uh, officer thought that it was uh, medicine. But you know, that was God just keeping that man with us. We needed a man there on the property. And I've often thought how God brings to naught all of the machinations of the enemy. And uh, so I, then I ran out after telling 
the officer all the things that were wrong with him, and I ran out, and I saw that, that Mr. Diver was already in the truck, and I ran up to it, and I handed him the little bundle of clothes and things, and I thought they could have at least waited till I could say goodbye to him. They'd already started up the motors, and he looked down at me, and he said, Honey, just remember one thing, dear, that God said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And I'll tell you tonight that I really thought there were times when my God had left me and forsaken me. But when I looked up and took my eyes off of the circumstances and closed my ears to the sound of the bombs, and I could see him there on the parapet of heaven, never for a moment was I out of his sight. I never saw him again. That day we realized what we were there, and... uh, that we were going to have to make some kind of gardens. We were going to have to find some way to keep alive. Um, We were going into the jungle and getting roots and seeds off of bushes and things that we felt we could try at least to see if they were edible. And if they cooked and if they filled our stomachs, we felt that that was good food. And uh, many of the grasses that we learned to eat, we called some of them watercress because it made them seem nicer to eat. But some of them were terribly slimy, but we ate them anyway. And um, we had, among other things, to contend with rats. One of the things that I have said, uh, if I ever have time, I'm going to write a book on the rat and I. I could tell you so many stories about rats. I've had rats always in my missionary life and uh, in the Baling Valley where we were among the cannibals and I was adopted by the chieftain as his daughter. We had rats in there that weighed 30 pounds. That's a rat. They were true rodents. But uh, we had them and of course the, the houses are just single walls and it's impossible to keep the rats out. And during the rainy season, they invite all the country cousins to come in and join, join them in their city life. And the rats, oh, they, you had to put everything in a closet and lock it away. And, and many things that we would just pull into bed underneath our mosquito nets to try to keep the rats from chewing them and eating them during the night hours. And every night before we went to bed, Miss Jaffrey and I would go through that house and we would run the rats out of all the rooms until we got them to the kitchen. And then that was the only room in the house where you could shut the doors and shut off their exit. And each of us, armed with a broom, would fight those rats until we killed all the rats that we had corralled. I can still remember them in the night hours. I often think about those rats going up the walls and then jumping on you and screaming and uh, just like most women would do and trying to get them off until we had killed them. And we killed all these rats. One night, because we were living among these boogies people and they had apprehended uh, some of the men, especially the one man that was caught right there near the house, had been down over the mountainside from us, had killed four Dutch people, had stabbed them to death, and they were still covered with blood when they were finally apprehended. And um, they were people that had always been feared by other islanders because they were very clever, they had very beautiful, sleek prows, and they they were the pirates of the islands. And we were living in the midst of these people. And... uh, This one night, I had gone to bed, and Miss Jaffrey and I were sharing the one bedroom. I had moved in with uh, the Jaffreys in their house, 
And I suddenly became, you know how sometime in your half sleep, you're conscious of movement around you, but you're not fully awake. And finally, I just came suddenly awake, and I realized that there were rats all over that house. I could hear sounds in the living room. I could hear sounds all over outside of our, our own room. And I shook Miss Jaffrey, and I said, Margaret, there are rats out there. There are so many of them. I can hear them all over. I said, we better get up and light the lamps and go out and have another go at them. So I went to the door of our bedroom, and when I pulled open the door of the bedroom, there was a, it opened into a hall that ran the length of the house. There was a living dining room on one end and a bathroom and Dr. and Mrs. Jaffrey's bedroom on the other end. And just as I opened that door... Somebody just swished past me, and I could see him in the dim light of this little tiny oil lamp that we kept burning for Dr. Jaffrey, who was 72 years of age and sometimes had to get up during the night hours. And I thought it was Dr. Jaffrey, and I thought to myself, what a strange way for him to be acting in the middle of the night. Now, why is he rushing down this hall? But when I came out into the hall and I could see who this was, here was one of these boogie bandits. He, they wear the back black sarongs. And he pulled it up over his shoulder, pulled out his machete, and there he stood. And I don't know why I ever did what I did, because I'm really quite a coward. But I took off down that hall right after him. He was a bigger coward than I was. He went through that bathroom and down over the porch and down over the mountainside, and I went right after him. And when I saw several others come out of the jungle and join him there, I stopped dead and I said, Lord, what a stupid thing for me to do. And just like that, the Lord answered me, and he said, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth. I turned around, I went back up to the house after they disappeared. I reached to pull the door shut, and when uh, there was, they're very clever with their long knives. They clo- carved out the nicest little porthole you ever saw. They removed the doorknob, the lock, the key, everything that went with it. I uh, said, uh, by this time, Dr. Jaffrey was awake. He came out and he said, well, what's the matter? And I said, we've had bandits in here. And uh, I said, I can't, can't close the door. I said, now you just wait here. I'm going up and I'm going trying to find some boards, a hammer and some nails. And I nailed that door shut, but realized there were still two other doors in that house that they could carve some more portholes and get in again. And, uh, but that night we thanked God that his angels had kept us from uh, being molested by those men. And it wasn't until after I went back after the war and I went to find someone that I thought must have been there because whoever it was knew the layout of that house. They had been there for hours. They had stripped curtains off of the windows. They had gone through all the books, evidently looking for money that might have been hidden in the books. They had taken everything that they could use and some food as well. And I thought, no more. A young man who had worked for the Jaffreys before the war, and he knew the layout of that house. So I went to find him, and I finally found him. And when I uh, said to him, Nomo, uh, back there during the time that we were here in the uh, war, did you ever come up with some other people and get into the house? And he dropped his head, and he said, yes, Nyonya, I did. I was with them that night, and he said we were having great problems finding sufficient food and clothing and things, so we came there, 
And I said, but we heard you come back. Oh, we could hear the dogs barking. And we could hear the moving in the jungle and, and knew that they were out there. And yet never once did they come to the house and open the doors. And I said, how was it that you came back night after night and yet you never came into the house again? And he looked at me. He said, oh, but you had all those people in white standing guard around your place. They were the angels of the Lord, and the angels of the Lord are still encamped around about those that fear him. We just don't see them with our natural eyes, but I know they're there because his word says they're there. We were there for about a year, and finally they came and said that they, we were living in much too much luxury. They were going to take us somewhere else. So they took us five kilometers farther into the interior, and then they pointed across a valley and up on the mountainside there were some crude shacks over there and they said now you're going to go over there when I got to the house finally uh, my nerves got a hold of me and I really was sick there are many things about those months there that I have blocked out of my memory I the Lord brought to my recollection some of the things that happened and but the things that I remember most about it is seeing the faith of a man like Dr. Jaffrey. You know, um, it wasn't until I was writing this book that I realized that that flashlight of Dr. Jaffrey's and those batteries that he had lasted for over two years, and never once did they go out. There was no way to get new ones, and uh, Dr. Jaffrey needed that flashlight, and I said to him, How is it that they have never discovered your flashlight? He said, when I hear them coming, and we would always sound the alarm. Everybody knew when they were coming. And he said, I just go up there, and I lift up my pillow, and I put that and my father's watch under there. And I say, Lord, these things are meaningful to me. I need that flashlight, and this watch they don't need. That was my father's. And I put the pillow back down on there, and then... They never lifted up the pillow. And Dr. Jaffrey would come in, conscious that they were going to be there. He would put down that mattress. He would lift up the pillow, put his watch back up on the little stand beside the bed. I saw the man of faith that he was. Those were very precious experiences to me. And the time when um, he stood at the end of my bed there, and I had been out working in the garden. I thought it was a sunstroke, and I had a very high fever, and there was no way they could get it down. And I remember Dr. Jaffrey standing at the foot of the bed, and he had his hands on the iron bedstead, and he just looked up, without even closing his eyes. He said, Lord, it's difficult to be sick at any time. But he said, especially in this time of war, and when these soldiers come He said, would you keep them away as long as Darlene is sick in bed? And you know, I was in bed for six weeks before my fever finally came down, and never once did any soldiers come to that place. And I said, the day I got up and I had dressed for the first time and gone out, the alarm went off and said, soldiers are approaching. I said, Dr. Jaffrey, couldn't you just said six months (laughs) instead of six weeks? After we had been there about six months, they came and said, we're going to take you somewhere else and intern you. We packed up a few things. We were only allowed to take three other dresses beside the one we wore, so I put on all the clothes I could get on. I was within six months of furlough when the war came, so I knew my clothes wouldn't last very long. And we went from... 
the place where we were staying there across the mountain over to the uh, village of Molino, where the Dutch people had been interned. And uh, that night we slept in a church. We put the older people up on the benches in the church, and we slept down underneath on the floor, waiting for the trucks, and the trucks were beginning to pull in at dark. And then just as it was just getting light in the early morning hours, we heard them start to rev up the trucks, and everybody was beginning to move. And I can remember lying there and thinking, um, oft me thinks I hear his footsteps stealing down the paths of time, and the future dark with shadows brightens with a hope sublime. And I thought, Lord, couldn't you just come back today? And always there was there, even in the darkest of the days, the realization that God was there and things became bright again. I remember that day as we got into those trucks. They drove just as fast as they could and round the corners, and we were just sure that somebody was going to be thrown off of that truck or the whole lot of us were going to go down the mountainside. The hundreds of feet below, you could see the valleys down there. But by the time we finally got to the coast, they pulled up into an area that they had been making into an internment camp. We looked and saw these um, great long barracks. They were about a half block long. And they said, this is where you're going to be staying. We, uh, they divided us up into groups, the Dutch people in most of the barracks, and then all of the foreigners were in the one barracks. And... Uh, I was chosen, I think, perhaps because of the fact that I was fluent in in Dutch and also Indonesian as well as English. And uh, I was head of this largest barrack in the camp. We called it the Heinz Barrack because we were almost 57 varieties. There weren't many nationalities that weren't represented there. And yet, being so many people from so many different areas of the world, God just brought us together And I'm sure it was because every night I called them together and we all came up to the front of the barracks and I read God's word to them and then we had prayer together and there were out of those that gathered with me there, those that came to know Jesus Christ and could thank God for that war because they came to know him as Lord and Savior. We had to um, have people to work and fulfill all of the jobs that were given us by the Japanese. We made their uniforms. The older women knit socks for them. We worked in rice fields and mud up to our hip. And, of course, in the mud so that we got these uh, terrible tropical ulcers on our legs. I've uh, built roads for the Japanese, worked out in the sun days on end, felling trees. Uh, We worked uh, on the coolie gang, those of us who were young, and strong, we moved up to the back of the trucks. They hurled the big bags of rice and sugar on our backs, and you grabbed the ends of the uh, bags and you walked away with it or else. There were many times when I thought my legs were going to crumble under me, and yet I uh, said, God, just help me to get this to the storehouse so I can throw it off my shoulder, and then you turned around and went back again. We had, among other things, that we raised for them pigs. We had a large pig pen that had a beautiful uh, cement floor that had to be kept clean. Uh, We had to cook three meals a day for those pigs. The camp commander went out into the jungle, or out into the villages near us. He shot dogs, brought them in. We skinned the dogs, 
cut them up, cook them with the stems of the banana plant so that these pigs could have three hot meals a day. When the garbage came in from the coast, from the officers there, we always gave it the finger uh, test. You went through it like this, and if it didn't fall between your fingers, it was big enough to eat. And uh, we ate the dog's livers. When he found out that we were eating the livers from the dogs, it doesn't taste any different from cow's liver. Uh, We were told that if he ever caught any of us eating the dog's liver, that he was going to beat us up. We knew that he could because he had just killed one of the men up in the men's camp before he was brought down to our camp. And uh, so we were very careful that we weren't caught getting the dog's livers. Some of the other things we carried back uh, hid them inside of our clothes so we could carry them back and have them for the kitchen for those that were in the hospital and those that were very ill. With the pigs, we got flies, and with the coming of the flies by the aliens into the camp. We had to kill, in spite of all of the other work we had to do, we had to kill flies, and you were uh, sometimes called up to his office, and he made you count the flies, lay them out, so that he could see that everybody had 100 flies a day. And uh, in spite of that, there still were just aliens of flies. They, we got dysentery in the camp, And, of course, the flies carried the dysentery everywhere. You couldn't sit down and eat your food without having flies in it. And uh, you kept going like this all the time you were eating. They brought in, sometimes we had sufficient food, sometimes we didn't. We said we never lost, uh, skipped any meals, but we sure postponed a lot of them. But uh, when they brought in these fish, boy, we didn't take anything off of them, and we didn't take anything out of them. And um, I can remember Mrs. Presswood sitting next to me, and she said, You know, darling, I could eat the head of that fish if it didn't look up at me so pitifully. I said, I long since lost my pity for it here. And I gave her a piece of the tail of mine, and she would give me the head of hers. There's only, the only thing you can't eat about a fish is the pupil of the eye. It gets to be just like a hard little BB when it's cooked. We uh, one day... Uh, And if you were cooking porridge, you were up at 4 o'clock in the morning and stood there with this great big paddle and cooking in a 55-gallon drum the porridge for the villa. And you, uh, this one day, it just tasted so good. It tasted just like it had bouillon in it. But when it got daylight so that we could actually see what was in our plates, there were hairs that were surfacing, and finally the tail of a rat turned up and some feathers and we realized uh, reconstructing must, must have happened during the night. There was a ledge right up above the drum for the porridge, and you soaked your rice during the night. And they must have been struggling there, the rat trying to get the bird, and both of them fell into the drum and drowned, and so they got cooked. But uh, we had um, so many people down with dysentery that finally there were 500 people down with dysentery, And the rats in our barracks, they were just bamboo mat walls with um, mud floors. And during the rain, there was just mud constantly there. And double-decker bamboo racks on which we slept. And I've even had the the rats eat my mosquito net and get into bed with me. And so now you know about these other rats, too. But I can remember one night when I awakened and I could look down uh, where my toes were. I was on the upper rack, and there was a, an opening between the wall and the, uh, the roof, the grass roof. 
and the moonlight was showing me that there was a big rat coming right up my blanket toward me. And I quickly pulled my feet up, and I sat up, and I yelled uh, for Miss Kemp, who was down below me, to please pull my mosquito net out at the end, the head end, so that I could get the mosquito net between me and that big rat that was in bed with me. And finally she got it out, pulled it out, and when he made his, and he was just frantic, he was as frantic to get out of that bed as I was to have him get out. And uh, he was just going round and round, and I was just watching this rat going around there and trying to get the covers pulled up around my back. And finally she pulled this out, and I pulled it over my head and got it between me and him, and then I slid down the pole, and I got a club, and I went back up after him, but he made his escape by this time. We've had them to latch onto the toes and fingers of children that got their hands up at the mosquito net during the night and were sucking the blood out of the children's uh, extremities. Uh, When we had those that were down with dysentery and they could smell death, we finally came to the, the realization we had to set guards over them during the night hours to keep the rats off of them because they smelled death and were trying to get at our patients. It was a difficult time then. Those of us who were young were doing two and three jobs a day, running from one place to another. And uh, it was um, in the fall, uh, in November of 1943, when Mrs. Yaustra, who was the Dutch head under the Japanese camp commander, came over to the barracks this morning. And she said, Mrs. Dibler, I want to talk to you for a few minutes. I thought about the work. And so we talked about it, and I said, I still have a number of young women here who are very helpful, and if anyone's sick, they just fill in. And so we were doing two and three jobs a day, and I said, if there's anybody else that can't make it during that day, well, then we can call on these young women here, and I also am available. And finally, she just stopped in, and she said, but I really didn't come to talk to you about the work. She said, your husband up in the camp in Paripari, which was 100 kilometers to the north of us, has been very ill. And then she stopped, and I saw the tears in her eyes, and I grabbed her shoulders. I said, Mrs. Yostra, you don't mean he's gone. She said, yes, he died three months ago up in the camp in Paripari. It was one of those moments when I thought my Lord had left me. I was like every young person. I was waiting for the day when the war would be over and I could go home to New Guinea to my people. And I just turned around and I went to the only one I knew to go to and I said, God. Immediately he answered me. He said, did I not say to you, my child, that when thou passest through the rivers, I would be with thee? And through the floods they not overflow thee, and neither should the fire kindle upon thee. And I turned away and I said, Lord, all right. I learned in those days that there is a peace that cometh after sorrow of hope surrendered, not of hope fulfilled, a peace that looketh not upon tomorrow, but calmly on a tempest that is stilled. It's a peace that lives not now, enjoys excesses, nor in the happy life of love secure. But in the unerring strength the heart possesses, 
from conflicts won while learning to endure. It's a peace that is in sacrifice secluded, a life subdued from will and passion free. Tis not the peace that over Eden brooded, but that which triumphed in Gethsemane. And I can tell you tonight, beloved, there is a peace through the comfort of the Holy Spirit that nobody can understand until you pass through it and know. We had had women who were taken away from our camp by the Kempetai. Some of them returned, some never came back again. Those that did return never talked about what happened to them. I ran up into the office, and there was a table there in the center of the room, and they were walking around me, and I tried not to uh, learn Japanese because it was better. They thought that you learn Japanese in order to spy on them. Languages have come easily for me, but I tried not to learn it. I had certain commands I had to give in Japanese, and that was all I knew. And they, all I could understand was when they were laughing and poking fun at me, and it was America. And finally, one of them stopped, and he put the paper out in front of me. He said, is that your name? And I looked at it. I saw Darlene Dibler written on the paper. And I said, yes, sir, I am Darlene Dibler. But I didn't write that. He said, I didn't ask you if you wrote it. But he said, are you Darlene Dibler? I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, what do you know about Morse code? And he began to tap out messages on the desk to me. I didn't know Morse code. I never learned it. I said, sir, I don't know a thing about Morse code. I have never learned it. And he said, you go over, and he said, get another dress and come back. We're going to take you somewhere else to. And he said, we'll see how much you know about Morse code. So I ran back. I grabbed my Bible and another dress and came back. And uh, I got into the car, was taken out of the camp, taken down to the city of Makassar, which I knew well, having lived there and worked there before. And I saw that they were pulling up in front of what had formerly been our native insane asylum. As they pulled into this circular drive in front of it, I saw that they had made a prison out of it. And I could see Miss Kemp, a woman who had weighed about 170 pounds, and she was just skin and bone in two weeks. And I could see her arms as she hung on to the bars, and she was shaking her head at me like this, and the, uh, her arms were just black and blue when we finally got her back to the camp and put her in the hospital. And here she was, black and blue from her shoulders to her wrists and from her waist to her knees, where they had beaten her, trying to get her to sign a confession that I had been doing spy work so they wouldn't have to try me. She said, I'd say to them, I know she hasn't done it. And they would beat her again, and they said, well, write it out. She has been. He, she said, I can't do it. I know she hasn't been a spy. I know she has never had a radio. She's never been in the jungle contacting the Allies. And again and again they would beat her, trying to get her to sign the confession. When I saw her condition after two weeks in that prison, my heart cried out, and very often we will ask God why, and some people say you're not supposed to ask him why, but never was my Lord more man than when he, on the cross he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was man bearing the sins of mankind, and he was God. I just cried out, Lord, 
why must I go through this? Wasn't it enough that you took Russell? And so sweetly my Lord answered me. He said, my child, whom I love, I chasten. I said, all right, Lord. And then I remembered the last words that Dr. Jaffrey had ever said to me when they took him away from the camp. He leaned down over the tailgate of the truck, and he said, Lassie, whatever you do, be a good soldier for Jesus Christ. And as I followed the guard up to the office, all that I could think of was, God, make me a good soldier. And I said, Lord, if I ever come through this and anybody in America ever hears about these days, I don't want them to be ashamed of me as a fellow American. They grabbed my Bible. The first thing they said, you can't have that book. You'll be sitting in there reading that book and not thinking against, about your evil deeds against the Imperial Japanese Army. And then the guard uh, put his bayonet on his gun, and he turned and put it into my back, and he started putting me, running me through this first uh, um, cell block. And when he stopped in front of one of the doors, I looked up at the door and written on the door in Indonesian with chalk was, Orang ini musti mati, this person must die, and I knew I was in death row. I remember that day when the guard opened that door and he put his hand behind me and shoved me into that little cell and I hit the other side and then I turned around and I came back and I knelt down in front of that door. I was watching the end of the key for I knew when it made a complete revolution, I was locked in death row. And when he pulled the key out and started to go away, I suddenly realized I was sitting there on the floor of that cell and I was singing. You know what I was singing? A song I learned as a little girl in Sunday school. I don't even remember memorizing it. But I was sitting there singing, Fear not, little flock, whatever your lot. He enters all rooms, the doors being shut. He never forsakes, he never's gone. So count on his presence from darkness till dawn. They could lock me in that cell, but they could not lock my Lord out became a veritable chapel, a sanctuary to me in a wilderness place. Many times when his presence filled that cell until I've opened my eyes because I thought I must be in glory, and I would see the cell walls around me and realize that God was there with me. I went to those hearings. They said I had been an American spy. They said they had evidence A Chinese fellow came in. He had confessed to them that he had seen me in the jungle with a radio having contact with the Allies, that I had been reporting on plane movements, on troop movements. And I said, but I have never been in a jungle with a radio. I have never done those things. I didn't realize what a sensitive spot that was right there between your eyes. And he had such large fingers, and he was very strong. And when he would flick me there until I felt like my my head was going to burst, I caught a glimpse of myself one day walking by one of the windows, and I saw I had two large black eyes. They used judo chops on you, and I thought my neck was broken many a time. But I never shed a tear before them. But I'll be honest with you tonight, when I got back to that cell... And they locked that door. I wept buckets of tears. I just threw myself on the floor and I would just sob and sob. And I said, God, I can't go through another one. 
I just can't. And he'd always come and say, but my child, my grace is sufficient for you. And I'd sit up and as I felt the Lord's presence there with me, and then I would begin to sing, and I knew then why God had laid it on my heart two weeks before I was brought down to this prison. In Streams of the Desert, there was a poem written by Annie Johnson Flint, and I would say to myself when I came back after a day's work, the last light that was coming in that opening, um, I would lay the book down and I said, I've got to memorize this poem. And then I'd say, no, you ought to be sleeping because four o'clock comes early in the morning. And I'd say again, no, I've got to memorize it. And then I knew why God had laid it on my heart to memorize that poem. The music was put to it by two of our missionaries, Mr. Morkin and Mr. Mitchell. Maybe some of you know it. But when the Lord would say, my child, my grace is sufficient, not it's going to be, it is right now sufficient for you, I would begin to sing, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance and our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, Father's full giving is only begun. His love knows no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again. By this time, I was very, very thin. When I came into the cell, I had dysentery. I knew that, but I had not gone into the hospital because we had to have these younger people. We had to do the extra work that was there to do. And the first day, they threw in a plate, a tin plate, that had some rice on it with a little bit of sugar at the top, and I was so upset I couldn't eat it, so he came and grabbed it again, and he said, well, if you don't like sugar, you'll never get it again, and he didn't. Then when they realized I had dysentery, they took me off of the whole rice and put me on rice porridge. Of course, I had no spoon. I learned to handle rice with my fingers, and it's a nice way to eat it. Just roll it into a little ball and get your thumb behind just pop it into your mouth. And I like eating rice with my fingers. But porridge, that was something else. And when they put that first plate of porridge in there, and there was no sugar, no cream with it, no salt, because I also had beriberi, which is a form of dropsy. And uh, the fluid fills up the t- in the tissues, and it creeps up toward the heart. I also had cerebral malaria, which is usually fatal. And when I saw that first plate of porridge come across the floor there to me, and of course the only opening was a little transom above the door, but I couldn't see it very well. And I looked down at it and I thought, I saw all this white stuff on the top. And I said, oh joy, somebody knows I love fresh grated coconut. And I picked it up and I got over to the door where I could see from the light coming in the transom, it wasn't coconut, it was worms. It was just filled with worms. 
And I remember thinking, oh boy, that's a new experience. And I'm going to shove them all up on the side of the plate. And I was picking these worms out and I had them all around the plate. And of course, with the dysentery, in came these big blue bottle flies. And they just lit on that plate. And right there, and they were eating those worms. And I thought, now that's no good. If they can eat the worms, so can I. And I had a dress with a rather large skirt on it, and I would get the flies off of it and cover it with my skirt, and then I would get my hand in underneath of there and get a handful of that porridge and try to eat it. And finally, I just gave that up because that was a a loss. And so I just pulled it up and made a funnel out of my hands and let it roll into my mouth, worms and all. And I could thank God. I honestly could thank him for that plate of rice porridge, worms and all, because I knew I could have been there without anything to eat. And one day I had climbed up because I was having an attack of malaria. And I got up to the transom above the door, and I was hanging on there. And I had one foot on the doorknob and the other foot over on the windowsill. And I was hanging there, and I was trying to get air on my face because of the the uh, terrible fever from the malaria. And I saw, I could see the courtyard there. There was an overhang of the roof, so nobody could see me, but I could see them. And I was so fascinated to see other women. And most of them were Native women there just for minor misdemeanors, and they were allowed to walk around that courtyard in the afternoon. And uh, I saw this one woman... And she was edging off toward that, uh, the fence that was at one end of the courtyard. It was covered with Honolulu creeper. And through that Honolulu creeper came a hand, and on that hand was a big bunch of bananas. And seeing those bananas, oh, I wanted anything to eat. I could smell those bananas. I could remember the taste of bananas. Oh, I wanted a banana. It was like a physical hurt within me. And I got right down off that door, and I got on my knees, and I said, Lord... I'm not asking you for a whole bunch of bananas like she has. Could I have just one banana, Lord? And then I did what maybe some of you do it too. I think most of us do. I tried to figure out how God could get a banana into that prison for me. And I said, now, Lord, now there's this, these two men that have been trying me, and now, neither one of those men would ever... Bring me a banana. I know that. Then, Lord, there is this other guard, and he wouldn't give me one. And there's this older man that's been coming here in the evenings to do guard duty. I think he might if he knew I wanted a banana, but I wouldn't ask him for a banana because if they ever caught him giving a banana to me, he might be shot. I said, Lord, that's it. There's nobody else around here. And I said, please, Lord, don't think that I am not grateful for this rice porridge. I really am. And I'm sorry if I ask for a banana and and you can't get a banana in here to me. And I really didn't see how God could ever get a banana in there. And the guard came and he got the door open. And I stood up very rapidly. But there, standing in the doorway was the camp commander, the Japanese camp commander from that other camp from which I had been brought down to this prison. And he was smiling, and it had been so long since I had seen a friendly face, since I had seen anyone smile. 
I was so excited. I just clapped my hands. I said, oh, Tony Yamaji, so pretty liat so young lama. I said, Mr. Yamaji, it's just like seeing an old friend. And the tears came in his eyes. He turned and he walked right out of the cell, never said a word to me. For a long time, he talked to those other men who have been trying me. I don't really know what he said. But I think he was telling them about the day when I heard that Russell was dead. And he called me over in the afternoon hours, and he said, I just wanted to talk to you. And I said, I just want to tell you about somebody I came to know when I was nine years of age back in Boone, Iowa, in America. I said, his name is Jesus. He's the Son of God, the Creator. I said, maybe you never heard of him, Mr. Yamaji, but I want to tell you about him. And the Lord gave me the most beautiful opportunity to lay the plan of salvation before that Japanese officer. And he kept nodding to me, and I said, This is why, Mr. Yamaji, I don't hate you. I said, I don't hate you, because wherever the love of God fills our hearts, there's no room for hatred. And I said, I don't know. Maybe God even brought me to this day, to this place, and to this moment to tell you that he loves you and that his son, Jesus Christ, died for you. And as I laid the plan of salvation before him, his tears started down over his cheeks, and he kept nodding to me. I knew from that moment on that man was my friend. And I really believe that God did a great work in that man's heart. And I believe that's what he was telling those men there that day, because their heads kept getting lower and lower. I believe he was pleading my cause. He finally came back into the cell, and he looked down at me, and he said, Oh, you're very ill, aren't you? And I said, Yes, Mr. Yamaji, I am. And he said, I'm going back to the camp now. He told me later he spent three whole days going from office to office before he finally got permission to come in to see me. And he said, I'm going back to the camp. The women are all wondering about where you are, what is happening to you. He didn't tell me at that time that they had these men had sent word back to the camp that I was dying of tuberculosis, said we'll never return her to camp because she's dying of tuberculosis, not wanting them to know that I was going to be beheaded. And he said, I'm going back now. Have you any word for the women back at the camp? And I said, yes, Mr. Yamaji. When you go back... Would you tell them that I am all right, that I am still trusting in the Lord? And I said, they'll understand, and you'll understand, Mr. Yamaji. And that man nodded his head, and he walked out of the cell. He was gone just as soon as that door was locked, and I heard them walk away. It hit me. I hadn't bowed to any of those Gestapo men. I thought, Lord, why could you not have helped me to remember to bow to them? Just as soon as Yamaji's gone, they're going to come and get me and take me back to the hearing room. And please, Lord, I don't want to go through another one of those. And then I heard the guard coming, and I knew he was coming for me. And I stood up and I said, Lord, I need strength to walk to that hearing room. But when the door went open, the guard walked in and he just laid them all out on the floor. Do you know what they were? bananas. I sat down and I counted them. There were 92 bananas. I don't know what you would have done, 
But I pushed those up in the corner just as far from me as I could get them, and that wasn't very far because I don't have much character. And I said, Lord, I have no right to eat those bananas. I said, yesterday I was telling you there was no way in the world you could even get one banana into me. And you know, so sweetly he came and he said, Oh, that's what I delight to do, the exceeding abundant, above anything you ask or think. And uh, the day I peeled the last banana and I said, Lord, how could you ever get me out of this place? And that day they, they came, they said, the guard said, we're going to take you somewhere else. I got into that place. Miss Kemp and Miss Seeley were also brought along, and uh, they gave us the last meal. I, uh, they said, now we want you to write out a statement that you are very grateful to the Japanese, Imperial Japanese Army because of their treatment of you. And this was to Miss Kemp and Miss Seeley. And Miss Kemp said, Darling, I can't write anything. Could you write it? Just write whatever he tells you to write. So I sat down and I wrote it. And they put the ink out on their thumbs and they put it on there. And then I was uh, the other man who was the brains of the team that had been trying me. He stood in front of me and he had the great sheaves of paper that he had written on. He always was just out of my, my line of vision, so I could not watch the expressions on his face, but he could watch my face. And he said, you are worthy of death. And he drew his finger across his throat, and he slapped the hilt of his sword, and he started to draw that out. And at that moment, when that sword was coming out, that man, I heard cars coming from all directions, and the brakes would screech, and they'd start to yell before they jumped out of their uh, the jeeps. And they were running inside of the office, and there was ceramic tile on the floor, and they were running in all directions, and they yelled for this man, and he went into the office. And then he was in there quite a while. I could hear their voices in there and talking rapidly, and they were excited. I don't know what happened. I only know that somehow in the providence of God he spared this unworthy person. He grabbed me and he took me out and he slammed me into a jeep and put two bottles of wine in my lap and said, those are for Mr. Yamaji. And that jeep started down that road and we were going like we were being pursued. And I thought, how true, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. But somehow God was there, and I have always believed that back here in America there were people that day who were on their knees praying for me. We didn't know what was happening in the outside world. And one year and two years and three years, and we were coming to our fourth year. And I remember that one day when just about noon we saw a plane, a lone plane, coming out of the east, and as it came down over the camp, it was low enough so that we could see American insignia on the side. An American boy was flying that plane. And then where he dropped, suddenly dropped over our camp, one of the auxiliary gasoline tanks. I felt angry. I thought, how dare you do that with all these women and children here? How dare you drop that over us? But I think he was trying to warn us that they were coming the next day. But none of us got the message. We didn't know where the Americans were. We, it was, came to the place where you thought, I'll spend the rest of my life in this camp of two acres square behind this barbed wire and the moat on the outside of the barbed wire. 
And then the next day we looked and we saw suddenly that there was there were many planes coming. They were moving out of the east and they were coming toward our camp and everybody got out there and stopped their work and we dropped our shovels and our picks and we looked up at all these planes coming, beautiful double fuselage planes. We'd never seen them before, P-38 Lightnings. And suddenly there were silver things coming from the backs of the planes and some were yelling, canned goods. And I said, no chocolate bars. And others were saying, no, they're pamphlets. And we were all yelling something. And then we heard the whistling of the bombs, and we knew we were wrong. And over that little camp of two-acre square, they laid 5,000 incendiary bombs. Just minutes, everything was going up in flames. I ran. I jumped into the ditch where we, I were supposed to lie when there were bombings. And the minute my feet hit the bottom of that ditch, the Lord said, you borrowed a Bible from that little Chinese woman. I said, that's right, Lord. I have no right to let it burn. And I jumped out of the ditch, and I ran to the barracks that was burning, and I grabbed that Bible off of my upper rack, and I came out, and I saw that they finally had opened the gate so we could get out of this burning holocaust. And I ran to the gate with others, and we went through it. We got down there, and here we were just in a beehive of Japanese soldiers. There were 138,000 soldiers around that camp. We didn't even know they were there. They had their machine guns set up, and they yelled, T-Door and you, T-Door. They just turned on you with their guns, with the bayonets fixed on them, and you just threw yourself out on the ground, and they were running over the tops of us to get to their machine guns. And they began to machine gun the planes. And, of course, the planes just turned around and came down. And they strafed us with machine gun bullets. And I dropped my hand onto my, uh, my head onto my hand. And I said, God, if at the end of this day anybody's alive, it will be a miracle. When the last of the planes had gone and the dust, the sound of the planes was no longer audible, And I could see that all of these things that had been burning had stopped burning, and there was smoke uh, coming up out of the camp. And I thought, Lord, I'm alive. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. I finally found Mrs. Presswood. I said, let's go back up to where our barracks was. Maybe we can find our tin cans, our spoons, something that has uh, been preserved even in the fire. We got up to where the barracks had been, and nobody knew that I had my bride's book sewn inside a native mat. How it happened, only God knows. But when that barracks burned, it fell backwards. The beds came down, the mat burned away, and must have been the wind that blew the, the bride's book open. And there in the center, on that beautiful black page, was this brilliant gold ink standing out of the certificate. And I looked down at it, and the sun, the last rays of the sun, was making that gold to shine. And I said, Lord, that was the only thing I had left. Couldn't I just have that? And the minute I touched it, it just completely disintegrated. I said, that was all I had. And he said to me, my child, That's what I want to do with you. I want to make you like pure gold, even if I have to take you through the fire seven times. I stood up and I said, all right, Lord, I'm available. 
I saw that the lady in the barracks, head of the barracks next to me was crying, and I went over to her, and I put my arm around her, and I said, please don't cry. She said, my mattress burned. I said, oh, yes, everything's burned, but we have much to thank God for. We're still alive. She said, but I didn't leave it in the barracks. I grabbed it off my bed, and I took it out, and I threw it in the ditch where you always lie. I walked over to that ditch, and right there where I had been lying was the ashes from her mattress and the casing from the bomb. I stood up. I walked away. I have never known such awe in the presence of my Lord. And I said, Father, it wasn't that woman's Bible you were concerned about, was it? You knew that was one way to get me out of that ditch. I said, God, whatever days you give me on this earth from now on, I want you to really know that it all belongs to you. They took us up into the jungle. They had known this bombing was coming because they had prepared very crude soldiers up there. They came back again three days later and they bombed us with shrapnel bombs. And then one day... They called at the camp, and they said, and this was two weeks after peace was signed, they told us that the war was over. I couldn't imagine leaving the camp. I didn't know where I was going. And they allowed me to go up and and, uh, act as the interpreter for the Japanese and the Allied officials because I knew English, I knew the Indonesian, I knew the Dutch. And Mr. Yamaji had dismissed the other man who was a translator, and he took me in to help. And through this, the uh, Australian major gave word to the American boys who were on the coast. And out of 300 that were reported there when the war started and they were taken prisoner, only 97 of those boys survived. And they had rigged up a little radio and sent out an SOS, and it was picked up by an American plane that went over. And those American planes were coming in, and they were ferrying those boys out to get them to medical help. And this major said, there is an American boy who's going to come up and see you. And I'll never forget the day, and, and we had had... After the bombing, we had about one comb for nine people, and livestock was plentiful. And I just cut my hair off just real short because we, as far as we knew, the war would go on for years yet. And I was a mess. My feet, of course, we had never had shoes in all those years, and that was good for strengthening our feet. But when this boy came in, and he was an American boy, and he was very well-dressed because they had gotten clothes from the the uh, Americans who were ferrying them out, and he said, uh, I understand there's an American girl here, and someone pointed me out, and I felt so embarrassed because he kept looking at my feet, and they weren't all that dirty, and I was so embarrassed, I sat down on the edge of this little hut, and I pulled my feet up underneath me, and he said, don't you have any shoes? And I said, oh, no, we haven't had shoes, but that's all right. I said, "Uh, that's good for your feet. He said, I'm going to get you some shoes. 
I, I, he said, I, I, I guess I must tell you, I'm, I'm an American boy, and my name is Tom, Saw- uh, is, uh, Tom Sawyer. And it was just on the tip of my tongue to say, yeah, I'm Becky Thatcher. <laughs> I didn't know if he had a sense of humor or not, so I thought I better not say that. So I said, yes, I am an American girl. He said, yes, I heard you're up here. He said, do you have anything that you really need right now? And I said, we need food for our children. Then they said, all right, we're not supposed to take any women and children. If I had not gone with these boys the next year, I would still have been in the camp because there was no provision made for moving those women out of that camp. They said, well, we'll take you on the last plane load. We'll hide you, and we'll get you across to Borneo, Balikpapa, and then on up to the Palawan Islands and then to Manila, and somehow you'll be able to get home again to America. I remember that day, the 19th day of September, 1945, when I stood there, and I was getting into the little boat to be rowed out to the plane that was there in the harbor. And I thought, as I rowed out to that plane, Lord, here I am going home, widowed at 26, with not a thing in the world that I could call my own. Got to Balikpapa in South Borneo. They took us to the hospital immediately, and they said, Is there anything special you'd like to have? And I said, I'd like a shower. We had so little soap and so little water. And I said, I, I would like to have a hot shower. Could we have a hot shower? And so they said, Oh, yes. Well, I didn't say hot because I didn't think anybody had hot showers anymore. But they took us there, and there was hot water, and we just had and soap, and it smelled nice. And we just showered and soaped, and then we'd rinse, and then we'd soap some more. And I don't know how long we were in there until we heard the sound of a knock on the door and said, Girls, um, we have tea ready. See, this is an Australian camp. We have tea ready for you. And uh, if you want to shower later on, you can have another shower. <laughs> so we sat down at the table. I tell you, it was an unusual experience to be using a knife and fork again. We have Welsh rarebit. And it just tasted so delicious. And then that night, they, we got into the hospital. I was taking 18 different kinds of vitamins and medicine at every meal. I said, I don't need food after I get this down. <laughs> but they decided we needed our hair properly cut. And then they gave us a permanent. And I ran over to the place where I wanted to go. I sent a telegram home, said, I'm coming home alone that rustles with the Lord, and I waited for news to come from my family in America. And I would go into the post office, and the young man was there, and I said, Have you any mail today for Darling Dibler? And he would look. He said, No, I'm sorry. There's nothing here. And I went back day after day. And finally, one day, he just said, Boy, I don't know why somebody wouldn't write to you. I was so embarrassed I didn't go back again until the day before they were going to ship us out. They kept us almost a month there until they felt we were strong enough to go home. And then I ran back that day, and I said, Do you have any mail for me now? And he looked again, and he said, No, there's nothing for you here. And we got on that ship. We were 23 days coming home on the Clip Fontaine. We were just within spitting distance of the shore of San Francisco, and they, they came out over the loudspeaker and said, Just pull her out again. Everything is full. Take it on up to Seattle, Washington. 
And uh, everybody was moaning and groaning, oh, this beautiful city. And I said, oh, I don't know anybody out in California anyway. And I've never been there. And I said, this is known territory to me. I'm glad to even stay on this ship for another three days. And then we pulled in here to Seattle, Washington on Navy Day, the end of November 1945. And that night they deloused us. And, and then the next morning they started to process us. And I remember when they... Uh, they, these people who had become friends of mine during the trip home were leaving and their families were coming and I went out and I crawled. We were sleeping three deep in hammocks out on the deck and I crawled in under those hammocks and I suddenly realized dad and mother are gone too. That's why I have not heard from anybody. And I said, Lord, you took Russell. Did you have to take mother and daddy too? And so sweetly he said, you can still trust me, my child. I got up and I said, Lord, I need to find a Red Cross woman. I need to get some money or something to get back to Iowa to trace anybody from my family that might still be alive. And I came around the, the corner of the deck and there was a Red Cross woman and I latched onto her and I said, now wait a minute. I said, I'm a POW. I said, I haven't heard anything from my family for over four years. And I said, I guess maybe they're gone, but I would need to get back to Iowa. Maybe somebody from the family's alive. She said, honey, what's your name? I said, darling Dibler. She said, I've been on the ship all morning looking for you. I have three telegrams, and they're all for mother and dad. But you know, oh, I thank God that he didn't let me meet that woman until I had met him. And I knew that even if mother and dad and the rest of them were gone, I could still trust my Lord. You know, it's wonderful that God brings you to that place where it's faith without trappings. Just faith in the testimony of a person that you've walked with for all these years. That even, I think maybe in a measure, it was like Job said, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Because I knew the character of my God. I opened them up. Mother said we moved out to Oakland, California in 1943. We knew you were on the ship. We tried to get over there, and when they took you out, we can't get to Seattle in time to meet you, but we're sending money. And it's at uh, Western Union. Now you go and get that. And then you get a ticket and come down to Oakland, California. And we'll be here to meet you. And you call us collect as soon as you can get to a telephone. I got to a telephone. You know, I've said so many times tonight, the Lord spoke to me. And people say, how do you know it is the Lord? I think this is the best illustration I could ever use. I had not heard my mother or father's voice for over eight years. But when that telephone went up, that receiver on the other end down there in Oakland, California, and I heard someone say, hello, Darlene, I knew it was mother. Nobody ever said my name like my mother did. That's the way it is with my Lord. When he says, my child, I know it's my Lord. And I listened. She told me my brother had just gotten in from Germany on the East Coast. The first thing he asked his mother, have you any word from Darlene? She said, I know she's on a ship and she's on her way up to Seattle, Washington. And so I went to the train station to get a ticket to Oakland, California. After collecting the money at Western Union, 
when I told him that I wanted a ticket for Oakland, California, he said, my dear, he said, don't you know a war's been on? He said, only Army and Navy personnel travel, and my heart just collapsed. With Emmy. And I said, no, I didn't know that. I said, I'm a POW. I just got here. And I said, I'm trying to get to Oakland, California, because my mother and dad are down there. He said, oh, I've got lots of tickets for people just like you. And I was in business again. <laughs> and then I went back to the ship to collect my things. And you know, they'd given us coats from the Red Cross that came from another area, era, another time. And I noticed that everybody who had a coat on on the streets there, the nap was very short and it was very smooth for uh, material. So I got back on the ship and I went to the captain and I said, I'd like to borrow your razor. I gave my coat a shave. <laughs> it looked pretty good after that. <laughs> then I got on the... I got on the train and I sent a cable to, or I sent a wire to my mother and dad uh, from uh, Portland. I thought I better tell them when I'm coming in. And I said, kill the fatted calf. I love you, darling. And I'm arriving at 11.30 tomorrow morning. And uh, my mother, my father told me this. He said, mother heard the telephone in the middle of the night. I didn't realize. You see, I'd been really out of it for so long that they, when you send a telegram, it goes right straight through. And it was in the middle of the night. And Dad said, Mother went to the phone, and I could hear her say, What? And then there was silence, and she said, What? And, oh. And she put the phone down, and she ran in and grabbed my father, and she said, She's all right. She hasn't lost her sense of humor. <laughs> and they were... The, sec the uh, woman who was reading it to her kept saying, Kill the fatted calf, love, darling. She knew the lost was found, the wanderer had returned home again. And there they were, oh, a great group of people from the church there. I didn't know any of them. So I was just looking for two faces. I was looking for Mother and Daddy's face. And I remember when I put my arms around them, I just sobbed. I said, oh, there were so many days. I thought I would never, ever see you again. And then as I held them tight, I thought, you know, if this is wonderful, meeting your loved ones you haven't seen for such a long time, what is it going to be like when someday those clouds will part asunder and Jesus will be there? I was a little girl, just 10 years of age, when I sat in a missionary conference, the closing service, and they were calling for those that would give their life to go wherever God sent them. It was all geared toward our high school and our college young people, but somebody knew that for the second seat from the back was a little 10-year-old brown-haired girl. And I felt a hand on my shoulder that night, and I turned around and looked, and there was no one there, and I knew it was my Lord. He said to me, my child, would you go anywhere, no matter what it costs? I was so thrilled to think that God even noticed me. With such love and adoration in my heart, I looked up into his face that night and I said, Lord Jesus, I would go anywhere for you, no matter what it costs. 
I understand something of the cost, beloved, but I don't even think about that anymore. I'd go anywhere for him. I'll tell you why tonight, because the compensations are so tremendous. I wouldn't trade places with any of you tonight. Those were not terrible years. They were the sweetest years that God ever gave me because then he taught me that he would never leave me nor forsake me. I heard him call, come follow. That was all. My gold grew dim. I rose and followed him. Oh, beloved, who wouldn't follow if they heard him call? And with that incredible thought, we come to the end of our three days now of listening to lifetime missionary Darlene Rose. Uh, Doctor, what an interesting question. Who wouldn't follow Mm. if they heard him call? She heard the Lord speak ever so clearly, uh, but she was also willing to let go of absolutely everything to follow him. Oh, John, I fear that many of us who call ourselves by his name would not hear the call because we're too busy to hear it and would not respond to it if it became clear that he wanted us to do what we don't want to do. Uh, There is just such strength in this woman's voice, even though, uh, you know, she is now a prayer warrior and old missionary looking back and reflecting and calling those days precious. Mm. They were so precious. You know, I have never met Darlene Rose. I regret that I've never had that opportunity. Uh, She is ill now. Uh, I'm told that she's going through, again, some pretty tough experiences, this time not because of wartime factors, but because of deteriorating health. Mm. And uh, I ask our listeners to be in prayer for her. Uh, I tell you, I just uh, would love to have lived next door to a lady like this. And I'm sure uh, there's going to be quite a reunion when she passes over and is embraced uh, by the master. Uh, You know, she said something the night this was recorded that we didn't air because it uh, was said before the actual story began. And I would like to let our listeners hear now what she told of that crown Mm. before she started uh, with her um, actual uh, message. Let's hear what she said. You're going to draw a deep breath at the end and say how terrible. But, beloved, it wasn't that way at all was the sweetest thing God ever did for me. I loved the Lord. I loved him since I was a child, nine years of age, and came to know him as my Lord and Savior. But at the end of the four years of imprisonment, I knew him experientially. I knew that those precepts, those things that I had learned had been taught were real, that everything in this book is real, and that nothing is in there just to fill space. Every word of this book is important. John, those are the words of a lady of faith, Mm. and it's been a pleasure to offer this tribute again 
to the life and times of Darlene Rose. <laughs>